0: It's late in October of 2020, and the Peruvian Coast Guard is out on the high seas. They're tracking a fleet of Chinese fishing boats as they move from the Galapagos Islands down the coast to Peru. The fleet is after a catch that's become one of Peru's most lucrative exports, squid. The cephalopod that you might think of only when you eat calamari has in recent years become a huge export from South America, and is consumed by the tons in places like Japan and Spain, in addition to the US. On board with the Peruvian Coast Guard is Dan Collins, a foreign reporter based in Lima.
1: It's nine o'clock on a Saturday night, and we are 400 nautical miles from the South American mainland. Yet the sea around us is lit up like a city at night. We are looking at around 30 Chinese squid jiggers which shine spotlights on the sea to attract their catch.
0: Maneuvering between the massive tankers are refueling vessels, and in the center, there is a huge squid processing ship. The whole operation is built to stay out in the water for months on end.
1: The Coast Guard patrol vessel has moved closer uh, to one of the squid-jigger vessels. We're about 100 meters away, with the, and you can see very brightly the strip lights along the side of the ship. You can even see the light of a cigarette in the mouths of some of the workers who are pulling up these gigantic squid known as potter, a common catch here also for Peruvian fishermen. And that's of particular concern to see such a huge quantity of foreign fishing vessels uh, just outside their territorial waters.
0: The Coast Guard didn't encounter illegal activity on this night. But they were concerned that the Chinese fishing fleet would continue overfishing off the coast of Peru, like they had up in the Galapagos. And so this is why they brought Dan Collins out there. He was part of an effort by Peru to get reporters to expose what was happening, to try to pressure the Chinese fleet to change their ways. What's going on here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is a peek into a world that many of us never see or imagine at least not when we get to a restaurant and order seafood. But it is indicative of the state of global fishing today. Large international players scooping increasingly massive catches, small-scale fishers worrying about their livelihoods, local law enforcement outmatched and overmanned, and consumers being given conflicted information about what they're eating. Well, we're about to shed some light on all of this. This is The Catch, a six-part series from Foreign Policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. I'm Ruxandra Guidi. In each episode, we're going to trace the squid catch from the sea to the plate, asking questions about sustainability, global economics, supply chains, and what it takes to curb illegal fishing. We're going from the water to the docks to the processing plants, all the way to the supermarkets and restaurants, and finally, your plate. Our story will take us all over the world as we tell the tale of this strange-looking sea creature. Today, part one, Out to Sea. Before we get back to the story of squid, let's start with my relationship to this species. I grew up in the 80s in Caracas, Venezuela time when jobs and food were plenty in the rich, oil-producing country. We lived close to the center of the city, about a 40-minute drive from the beach. Fish was abundant back then. We'd regularly eat parrotfish, red snapper or sea bass, with rice and beans and plantains on the side. About twice a week, we'd also have something that most Venezuelans didn't have a custom of eating, squid. That's because my mom worked in the biochemistry department, a Venezuela state research institution. And for as long as I can remember, her lab would experiment with squid. We'd take the squid's big optic nerve, she tells me, and we'd use that membrane to study sodium calcium exchange. So after running her experiments in the lab, squid after squid, my mom would bring the rest of the dead cephalopods home to eat, wary of just throwing them in the trash. She'd cut the body into little rings and then fry them, like the calamari you'd find in a fancy Italian restaurant. I ate so much squid as a kid, let's say I felt completely out of love with this species for quite a while, until squid showed up in my life again, but this time, it was popping up on the news.
2: This is an armada of fishing vessels. Harvesting squid off South America to feed China's enormous appetite for seafood. Quito's government call it a grave threat to the UNESCO World Heritage Site.
3: There's not anything that is seemingly illegal either by China's national laws or by international laws. But whether or not that fishing effort is unsustainable, I mean, that's a completely different story.
0: So I'm teaming up with Foreign Policy to tell the story of squid, which is really the story of modern day fishing practices, from how it's caught and processed, how it's policed and regulated, to how it's sold and cooked. It's a story about the deep sea creature with a long body, eight arms and two tentacles, the beast of old fisherman's lore, the kind that attacked Captain Nemo's ship, the Nautilus, in 20,000 leagues under the sea. Call me skeptical, but I'm up for a challenge. So I started looking into it. It turns out that squid populations aren't classified as endangered as of yet, and there are species that can more easily adapt to climate change. But what does its relative well-being say about other species we eat? What about global trade? What about the people who catch them? And where should I even start looking for these answers? 50% of the world's squid is caught off the coast of Peru. It's home to the world's second largest squid fishery. It's a country with a rich culinary tradition where squid has been increasingly popping up on the menu. So here's the plan. I'm going to report on the ground straight to the source in Peruvian waters. I've been a journalist for the past 20 plus years focus mostly on Latin America and the U.S.-Mexico border region, including Tucson and landlocked Arizona where I now live. Having grown up so close to the Caribbean Sea, I relish the chance to go near the water to return to South
3: America. It's a really spring-like Saturday morning and I'm in Tucson um a few hours from boarding that flight to lima i haven't been to peru gosh since 2015 seven years ago but anyway i'm very excited to go down to peru to go from this landlocked state to the edge of the pacific ocean to learn more about bota or squids as a reminder the use of double mask is mandatory on board in the Benafaluso cabin pressure you must remove your face mask before using the aircraft oxygen mask thank you it's sunday morning just before noon actually so it's a little late and limeños are just walking up and down the malecón driving up and down the the main uh, freeway that's along the coast.
0: And uh, there's crowds everywhere. Whether it's people on bikes or surfers waiting for a wave or people laying down sunning themselves on the beach is just
3: crowded. It's pretty obvious how what a big presence the Pacific, the coast has on this, on this city, on this country.
0: Here in Lima, I'm meeting up with my reporting partner.
2: My name is Simeon Tegel and I'm an English freelance journalist based in Lima since 2009. I cover all kinds of stories from corruption, and drug trafficking, to travel and cuisine. But my speciality is environmental stories. As an outdoorsy kind of person and an environmental journalist, Peru is really a great place to be. The Peruvian Amazon is huge. It's twice the size of California. Then there are the Andes. Peru is home to more than two thirds of the world's tropical glaciers. And then there's the Pacific coast. It's 2000 miles long and home to arguably the world's most diverse and prolific marine ecosystem.
0: Peru's economy is largely informal so people get paid in cash for selling goods and services. Few are in a fixed salary. Fishing here is particularly vulnerable to political pressures and lobbying. It is export heavy, and it makes it really hard to know who is catching what. And this is what's taking us to Baita, in the northwestern edge of the country, where the locally-caught Humboldt squid is the top export, bringing in almost a billion dollars to Peru's economy each year so it's back to the airport for a jaunt up the coast. The flight north from Lima is a little over an hour long, so I'm using that time to read up on Paita, a place where indigenous peoples have lived and fished for thousands of years. The city was founded in 1532 by conquistador Francisco Pizarro, who was best known for his conquest of the Incas and the murder of their leader, about 300 kilometers south of the city. And by the late 16th century, Paita became Peru's main port. The next few hundred years of history aren't terribly notable. In the first half of the 19th century, Paita was where British and American whaling ships stopped for supplies or for repairs. Local men worked in some of these vessels. The U.S. government even had a consulate there around that time. Then whaling went out of vogue, and Baita went through a period when it became more of a sleepy fishing town. But in the 60s and 70s, fishing came back in a big way. So that's why we've come. We're here, driving around in our little rental car. It's hot and humid outside. 18 wheelers dominate the roads, and we're trying not to get run over by them. Most of these trucks are moving Baita's main product around, seafood, from the pier to the prep and packaging plants, and then to Peru's main port as it heads out for export. Around 80% of business activity in Baita relies on fishing. This area is a flat, scrubby desert next to an incredibly fertile, abundant marine ecosystem. Tons of mahi-mahi, anchoveta or anchovy, mackerel, and humboldt squid are fished out of this stretch of the Pacific Ocean each year. But none of those profits stay here. Baita and its wider region, Piura, are really missing out on government investment. This is largely due to the informality of the fishing sector The roads aren't in good shape. There are no squares or parks downtown. Historic buildings are falling apart. As we head towards the pier, we can smell the salitre, the salt and the humidity in the air. Pelicans and seagulls are circling above looking for an easy catch.
2: So we're walking on the pier now in Paita with lots of fishing boats all around us in the sea. One large, huge boat, I think it's a cargo boat, ship. Uh, around us. It is 10 in the morning. There are pelicans in the sea, eating uh, whatever uh, bits of fish, unwanted pieces are thrown into the sea by the fishermen. And there are motor taxis driving up and down the pier, carrying fishermen, and also um, uh, unloading the fish as well.
0: It's a hub of chaotic activity. And this is Squid Central fishermen are coming and going, loading and unloading the day's catch. Sea lions and green turtles that are as big as a dining room table are swimming about, unafraid. This is their home, too. We can see dozens of chalanas, or small motor boats, shuffling people back and forth to the larger fishing vessels. And those larger vessels are the ones that go out to sea to catch fish and squid. They can hold up to 1,000 cubic feet roughly the size of a couple of concrete mixer trucks. The ships are known as artisanal vessels, meaning they are not industrial fishing ships. More on those later. These smaller boats have a crew of up to 10 or 12 people tops, and they can't be any bigger than 50 feet long by law. Artisanal fishing powers this region. There are more than 13,000 people who make a living from fishing here in northwestern Peru. It's early March. We're at the very end of Mahi Mahi season and at the start of
2: squid fishing season. So this is, uh, they're unloading the squid uh, straight into a truck full of ice. Wow, he's showing me a squid that's probably about four feet long. That's a big squid.
0: The Humboldt squid is locally known as pota. We hear it's an Argentinian word, or maybe it's Catalan, no one seems to know for sure. But it's a different species than a regular squid, or calamar, which is smaller, yet has bigger fins relative to its body. It's a beautiful, magical animal. Its glossy, invertebrate body is of a light pink with purplish and bluish undertones. It's what keeps it so well camouflaged underwater. It has 10 long, delicate arms, and it can be bioluminescent, which means it can literally light itself up. It can do so in 28 different patterns of light, the same way fireflies will light up the sky, dancing around one another. Researchers explain this as a complex type of deep sea communication. And as we'll hear later, this trait is one of the reasons why pota fishing is done at night. Oh yes, and one more thing, it is a ferocious animal. There have been stories of fishers finding human fingers in their guts. They're also known as Diablo Rojo, or Red Devil, in Mexico. That gives you an idea. So maybe Jules Verne wasn't so off when he decided to make the squid the villain of his book. Humboldt squid is the most hunted cephalopod around the world, from Tierra del Fuego in Argentina all the way north to California, or even Alaska in British Columbia. Here in Paita though, we can see hundreds, no, thousands of them already dead. Thrown into ice boxes on the dock, piled up on top of one another.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: So they take out the eyes and they gut them on the boat, which is what helps keep them o uh, keep them fresh.
0: Simeon's asking the fishermen what the pota weighs on average. Cinco kilos, they say. Five kilograms, or about 11 pounds. But some years ago, these fishermen were catching pota that weighed four or even five times as much. Their pay really fluctuates, depending on the catch. Fishermen in Paita will make less than 50 cents of a dollar per kilo of squid caught on a high season that can translate to about $800 a month for the crew members, and around 1000 for the captain, who can sometimes be the owner of the ship, too. There are around 3,000 to 4,000 artisanal fishing vessels in Paita alone. The squid we're looking at today are about the size of large watermelons, but not quite as thick, and their slimy tentacles extend out from their body like strands of white noodles. The botas here in Peru are very impressive. But don't confuse these with the so-called giant or even colossal squid, which can grow to 46 feet and weigh as much as 1,000 pounds. Those are the stuff of legend, of seafarers' myths. And fortunately, they're not being harvested by the men on these vessels.
2: So this sounds is the, uh, the squid being unloaded from the boat, washed and then packed in ice and straight onto a lorry. There are four pelicans all within three feet of me eating the row of uh, some maki-maki that have been gutted. And the pelicans are eating it. This is the first time I've ever been this close to a pelican.
0: (laughs) And it wouldn't be the last. But let's get back to squid. We've come to Paita to learn what this species has to do with the local and the national economy of Peru. Back in the 80s, hardly anybody here ate it. But then things changed in the 90s when other seafood became scarce and squid replaced them. Walking down the streets here in Paita, you can see squid on the menu of any ceviche stand. The fishing stores nearby all cater to ships catching squid, and the industrial part of town is full of processing plants that are packing it and exporting it to countries as far away as Spain or China or South Korea. By 2020, squid had become an integral part of the Peruvian economy. It's the top seafood export for this South American country. These days, the catch is more prevalent than ever. Warming waters, the killing off of squid's natural predators like hammerhead sharks, and other factors have led to a squid boom. But it's not just local fishermen who've taken notice. Squid may be something Americans think of only as calamari, But in China and Japan, it's a big dish. And in recent years, fishing fleets from China have come to dominate the waters just outside of Peru's economic zone. So are there enough of them to go around? And is the current pace of fishing sustainable?
3: Eduardo
0: Garcia is a 40-year-old fisherman who's been in this line of work for half his life. He's taken us out in the bay towards the vessel he goes fishing with for days at a time.
2: So right now we're on a small boat with a maybe 10 foot long, 15 foot long, with a 10 horsepower motor going very slowly through other parked boats, you could say, um, to Eduardo's uh, boat here in the the port of Paita. And we're going to get on board and he's going to show us around and show us what life is like uh, on his fishing boat when he goes out to fish potter and and other species, mainly uh, maki maki.
3: This is what
0: life is like for most fishermen, Eduardo says. We often start out on the fishing vessels as cooks, then we work on the deck, we move on to crewmen, and finally you can become the boss. It's up to you. You have to be smart and really into it. So here in Paita, men, and it's largely men, who sign on to work on a ship to catch mahi-mahi or squid, They work in teams. These are working-class jobs, but ones that they're proud to do. Fishing is beautiful, Eduardo tells us, but it can be a real sacrifice. You end up spending so much time out in the high seas. The high seas. According to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, They represent the planet's mass of salt water that is not part of territorial waters. Ideally, Eduardo and his crew should never have to travel out there to find a good catch. And by law, artisanal squid fishermen can go beyond Peru's waters, which extend 200 miles out from shore. But in reality, Eduardo and his crew are finding themselves on the high seas more and more frequently. And this can mean longer and more expensive trips and their 50-feet-long artisanal vessels may not be sturdy enough for such long, dangerous voyages. Often, fishermen and paita will head out for up to four days at a time. But if they can't find as much mahi-mahi or squid to make their investment in a few days' worth of fuel, food, labor, and other expenses worthwhile, they will choose to head out farther away. If the going is good, these men could spend about six days a month at home, the rest of the time, they'll be out at sea. We also spoke to Javier Chiroque, a fisherman and captain with almost 30 years of experience.
3: El pescador lo primero que tiene que hacer en la vida es saber nadar.
0: A fisherman must know he how to nadar, swim. That's number one, he, he says. Yet around wintertime here, we'll hear of the two, three, four, the up to seven people who disappear out at sea. Por año. Every year? Por año. It's negligence, Javier says. Lack of proper training. All of these men are self-taught. And then Javier shares the story of how a few years ago he and his crew ended up stranded out at sea without a working engine.
2: Y cuántos días estaban a la deriva sin, sin motor?
3: Mm. Hemos estado eight días. Porque otro ocho, ocho ocho día. días, The
0: engine just wouldn't come back on, he says. So we communicated with other fishermen on shore, who told us they were going to come for us. But the currents were strong. And then the batteries for our satellite communication system ran out too. When you find yourself in those circumstances, all you do is think about your family. What's going to happen? How can I leave them taken care of? They depend on me. We don't have insurance. If something happened to us, we could barely cover our funerals and a few months' subsistence for our families. Fishing can be dangerous and hard on the body, but besides being an old tradition in coastal Peru, it's simply a more profitable option for many informal workers. Artisanal fishing in Peru could be thought of as illegal or unregulated fishing. Only about one fifth of all fishers in to have formal fishing licenses. The truth is, Peru has a law in the books that regulates the industry from extraction to processing and export. It's the Ley General de Pesca, but it is erratically enforced. And many artisanal fishermen here complain about this. They want to be given their licenses. They want clear quotas and labor standards. They understand that better management of the squid fishery will be needed to ensure the long-term survival of the species. The problem is, the government hasn't moved on this issue. And for the fishermen, the situation is getting more and more frustrating.
1: Pero es
3: que es inconcebible aceptar It's
1: just inconceivable that we don't have enough resources for a scientific study.
0: That's Edwin Houghton. He's the president of the Paita Fishing Boat Owners Association. He's what you would consider a successful fisherman. We met up with him at his home in Paita in between fishing trips. And he says he's not buying government excuses for inaction.
1: Why? Because this is the second most important sector in Peru's economy after mining. No, I can't accept this.
0: So how come such a key sector of the Peruvian economy can't get the resources it needs to collect proper data? It's something Simeon and I talked about. The answer extends far beyond just fishing regulations, but actually is tied up with the country's overall economic structure where the government is in a pretty weak position, to put things mildly.
2: So I'd say, I mean, the first thing to understand about the fishing industry and the issues facing it here in Peru is that this comes in a national context of an economy that is deeply informal. They estimated that before the pandemic, about 70% of the Peruvian workforce was informal. So that's people getting paid cash in hand, no taxes, no benefits. And, you know, that's one of the major structural issues that is a problem within the Peruvian economy which is worth roughly 200 billion dollars a year. And then you have this background of a state that academics, sociologists, political scientists and like will normally talk about that absent state in Peru. Peru has all kinds of, plenty of laws, too many laws that most critics would say on the books and regulations. The big problem in Peru is enforcement.
0: After hanging out by the port, Samian and I want to go out on one more boat trip to get a broader perspective on artisanal fishermen's hopes for their livelihood. Right now, they're still finding ways to fill up their boats with bota, but it's getting harder. Basically, we don't know what we don't yet know about squid. Out here by the water, the world looks different. We're aboard one more fishing vessel, It's made out of wood and painted white with baby blue trim. It just got back from a 10-day venture to find mahi-mahi and squid. Atias Aguilar is a crew member, what they call here a tripulante. And like so many of his fellow fishermen, he's also a migrant from the Sierra, from the Andes. He came for the fishing jobs. Atias used to work on land, he tells us, in agriculture. And then he was tipped about better pay in fishing, so he found his way to this business 23 years ago. Back then, he says, they would catch so much toyo, or a species of shark. The vessel would be overflowing with it, and with squid too. And now shark is almost gone from these waters. Atias has seen certain species come and go, but it's all anecdotal, of course. 20 years ago, there was a lot more fish in the water. Yes, lots of fish and squid. Every day, Aguilar says. We're inside the ship's cabin. That's why it's so noisy. Outside, the water is calm, serene. But when they're out to catch squid late at night, the men will work around the clock. No sleep, hauling, getting wet. It's cold, it's snarly. I ask Aguilar, Can you describe how you know you're going to find fish to catch?
3: Well, you
0: have to head out to sea feeling positive, with faith in God, he tells me. It sounds beautiful,
3: hopeful. If you're positive,
0: everything will work out. God will guide you. But Aguilar's optimism and faith will only take him so far. It's much more complicated than that. With so many people relying on this fishery for their livelihoods, what will happen to artisanal fishermen if the bota, the squid, disappears? The answer is out of the hands of artisanal fishermen. It comes down to those who make the loss those who enforce them, and those who are trying to coordinate these efforts on an international scale. Next time on The Catch, we follow the squid out of the water and onto the processing plants to meet those whose livelihoods depend on its abundance.
2: All those people working for him they're working between 10 and 12 hours a day. I mean, look, you're talking about a 70-hour work week.
0: And that's it for part one of The Catch. Our show is a production of foreign policy in partnership with the Walton Family Foundation. Our production team includes Jimena Letgard, Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Maria Jimena Aragon, and Anissa Peseshki. Special thanks to my co-reporter, Simeon Tegel, based in Lima, and Dan Collins for sharing with us his audio monitoring Chinese fishing vessels. A big thanks to Teresa Ish, Renu Mittal, and Mark Shields from the Walton Family Foundation for their assistance. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, or head over to foreignpolicy.com, where you can listen to our other podcasts and sign up for our newsletter. The Catch is made possible in part by the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from Washington and around the world, please consider subscribing. The Catch listeners can get a 15% discount on their first month or year of access by going to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and using the promo code SQUID, S-Q-U-I-D, at checkout. Thanks for listening. I'm Ruxandra Guiri. See you next week.